Good morning. Uh, if you have uh, a Bible, you can turn to Judges chapter 6. Uh, am I on there? Check. Good? Okay. Um, I'm going to read uh, some verses out of Judges 6 and 7. Um, forgive the lack of symmetry through this. Uh, it's more of a sort of a oversight um, excuse me, overview on uh, the person of Gideon and how uh, God used and worked in his life in Israel around him. So uh, I'll begin reading at verse 11 in chapter 6 and then we'll move into chapter 7 as well. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why then has all this happened to us? And were all your wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Skip down to verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering and the, word of the, and the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. Beginning in, verse, in chapter 7. Beginning at verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them and by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the people said to Gideon, the people are still too many, excuse me, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you. And any, and any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall sit by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his own home. 
Skip down to verse 16. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. The word of God. Uh, This is a a very just unlikely man uh, for God to work through, yet he does. Um, Who is weak, who is full of messes, um, but we're told nonetheless uh, in verse um, 11, excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 6, that um, the Lord just comes to him and says, I'm with you. That the Lord is with Gideon. the Lord is with Gideon, meaning his presence is with him, that uh, the presence of the living God has come to and with this man. And, and that is a, a, a powerful phrase because um, the Christian life really is about living in the presence of God. It's about pursuing it. It's about staying in it. It's about uh, bringing others into it. But uh, more and more today, uh, that's a pretty unsure presence. Um, the presence, uh, Henry Nouwen says, is intended to give us joy and laughter. That when we get in the presence of God, it's meant to be a place, it's meant to be a presence where we find uh, extra worldly joy. And we are drawn more into laughter than we are more into tears. But today, um, in our ever-growing political divides and ethical uh, conversations, that's becoming um, a suspicious presence because what's happening is people are uh, doubling down on their side of an ethical or political argument, claiming their side is right because of the presence of God is with them. So on the other side of political and ethical debates, what you have people doing is saying, hey, you, you're wrong and God is with us on this side. And what that's doing is it's A, making us suspicious of the presence of God because if people believe that and practice that and God is with that, I want nothing to do with God and his presence. But it also makes us question and bring up the idea of how do you know you have the presence of God? How do we really know God's presence is with somebody? How do we know God's presence is really with a group of people? Um, What are some markers and things that we can identify? And um, let's do this in this text. Let's learn three. Let's learn three ways how you can actually identify uh, the real presence of God. Because he says he's with this man Gideon. Um, You can learn and know the presence of God because of why his presence will come. Uh, Two, what his presence will do. And three, uh, what he will require of you in that presence. So first, uh, why his presence will come. Uh, Again, we're told in verse 11 and 12... Uh, that the Lord is with this mighty man of valor. He has come. But here's the context. It says in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat and the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Uh, now, right here, we have the whole sort of uh, context and summary of the book of Judges. Uh, because why Gideon is uh, beating out wheat in the winepress is he's having to hide to sift wheat out because if he goes out into the open, um, the Midianites will come and plumage all that he has. 
And the reason is because there's a pattern that happens in the book of Judges where God calls his people to be a particular way. And what they do is they immediately turn to the idols and the gods of the foreign country along with trying to worship God. So God gives them over to their idols, gives them over to the foreign country, and then they cry out for help. But here in this text, um, it's gotten so bad because in the verses that I didn't read for you uh, earlier in chapter 6, God has sent a prophet to them and has said, uh, hey, return from, the, turn from your idolatry, come back to the Lord. They will not listen to him. So they're sort of living not only in idolatry, they're living in uh, the misery of their idol, uh, the foreign country and their idolatry ruling over them. They're having to hide. And God comes to this man and just says, uh, I am with you, that my presence is with you. And, and here's what's amazing about this, is that uh, the Lord comes to Gideon, and uh, there's no part in the text that reads Gideon asked for him. There's no part where Gideon was praying and asking for the Lord to intervene and come do something for Israel. There's, there were no prayers. Uh, there was no uh, any kind of seeking of any kind of Gideon. It's just that God comes straight to this man. And in, here's what the first thing we learn about the presence of God. That the reason God's presence will come into your life and come into a community's life is no presence of, is no reason at all. And what this does is it teaches us immediately about the presence of God, that it comes in only one way, through His grace. See, the presence of God, it comes through the person of Jesus, because the, the gospel, what it does, is it makes God's presence for us, His access to us, not conditional on any way that we are living, not conditional on any way we are pursuing Him. It is, all, it is only open to us and given to us because of His gracious love. And that is really helpful for us personally because it protects us from the mistake that Gideon makes. Look in verse 13. See, Gideon, he doesn't believe God's presence is with him. He immediately is suspicious of this. He says, please, my Lord, if you're with us, then why is all this happening to us? Here's what Gideon does, and this is the mistake that we often make, that Gideon believes uh, God's presence is discernible through the circumstances around his life. And the reason he believes that is because he thinks that the circumstances that are happening in and around his life are conditional on how he is or how he is not towards God. And this is a terrible mistake that we do because what it does is sometimes unnecessarily uh, hurts us and it sometimes it dangerously uh, inflates us. See, some of you have had um, a difficult 2019 um, some things that have been hard, uh, some things that have been challenging, some things that have been um, difficult to go through. And uh, one of the mistakes that you may make through this year is believing uh, that this is happening to you because you have not been faithful or that you have not been a good Christian or you've not been uh, pursuing God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so what's happening is he's punishing you and he's being cruel to you. And what that is, is it gives you unnecessary spiritual loneliness and depression. See, what, what the gospel says is that, listen, God's care for your life is never conditional. And his presence in your life is never conditional on how you are. But if you think that, then what happens through hard times is you'll think, not only am I going through this hard thing, I'm going through it alone. And God is not with me and no one loves me in it. 
and it can give, it can unnecessarily sink you. But what if you also don't understand that His presence comes through grace, it can dangerously inflate you, because some people your lives are going very well, and everything's been actually uh, free of conflict, free of suffering, free of pain. And what that can do is it can unnecessarily uh, inflate you to think, well, this is all going so well because I'm so godly. And I'm doing so well, and I think the right things, and I have the right doctrine, and I have the right practice. And God just gives me all the smiles and favor and blessings because of how great I am. And the problem with that is it then isolates you from everybody else who's having a hard life. And it can dangerously inflate you to begin to look down on every everybody else who doesn't think the same way that you do, who doesn't practice life the same way that you do, and it only pushes you into somebody who is self-righteous. See, but the presence of God, it only comes for one reason, and one reason only, not because of how faithful you are, but because of how faithful Jesus was. And in the gospel, God has strapped you on to the work and the righteousness of Jesus for access into his presence. One of my friends... Uh, he sent me a podcast one time that sort of made this abundantly clear for me. It was an interview with a, um, a guy who was talking about his dating relationship with a woman, and they were uh, investigating and thinking about whether or not to get married and wanted to know uh, if this relationship had a future. And uh, one of the things on the table for the relationship was that the man said, if you really want to be serious with me, you're going to have to adopt some of my hobbies. Uh, and the problem was that he was really adventurous and she was not. So one of the ways that he wanted to test this and see if she wanted to get serious is he wanted to go skydiving. And uh, let's just say that she was not, yeah, looking forward to it. And um, so the time comes and he's like, if you really want to be serious with me, this is one way we'll, we'll be able to figure out if we're going to have a lifelong friendship. So um, unfortunately, because the, you know, like some people do, the relationship seemed more valuable at the time, and so she goes along with it. So uh, they're going to go skydiving, and they show up to the place, and the guy says, okay, we have one rule and one rule only. Once you get in that plane, there's no backing out. So if you don't want to go, you've got to figure that out right now. And he looks at her, and he's like, you hear that? And she's like, okay, I got it. So they get up in the plane, and they start going up in the air. And the guy is like, uh, you know, a five-year-old at his birthday party. This is the greatest moment of my life. He can't wait for that thing to get up there. And the girl is about to vomit. And so it reaches the 10,000 feet. And the guy is just standing like by the door. He can't wait for that thing to open. Finally, they get to the jumping level. And he's, they open the door. And he's immediately going, yes, jumps out the door. And that sets off a panic button in that girl. And she tries to run to the back of the plane. She's like holding on to the rails, like begging and screaming. Uh, please don't make me go. But the problem is she's strapped to somebody like twice her weight. And so that guy just keeps walking to the front of the plane anyway because it doesn't matter because she's a tiny woman. And he just jumps out and she screams the whole way down. In fact, she faints halfway down. And the guy is thinking this is the, the boyfriend is like, I want to do this again. And she's about to die. And you know what happened is that they both landed on the, presence of, the safe presence of the ground. And the reason was it didn't matter that he thought this was the greatest moment and couldn't wait for it, and she was terrified and wanted nothing to do with it. The reason that they were on the safe presence of the ground is because they were strapped to somebody else who knew what they were doing. See, what, what the presence of God will do for his people 
is whether or not you want this and whether or not you are pursuing this and whether or not you are terrified of this, it will give you a safe access for one reason and one reason only because it will, he will strap you in the gospel to somebody who knew how to access it in Jesus himself. That's why he will come. And so if you want to know what the presence of God is like with people, they're just people who are filled with grace. All they can talk about is the grace of the gospel. All they can live out is the grace of the gospel. There's no selfish, uh, self-righteous superficiality because the reason that they're in his presence is no reason at all. Only his grace. That's why he will come. But secondly, when he comes in your life, he'll want to do something particular. Uh, look down in verse 13. Um, God says, I've come to be with you. And Gideon said, please, my Lord, if you're with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? See, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And what happens here is Gideon says, listen, Lord, okay, if you really are with us, if your presence was really around us, then you would do something like the Exodus. You would look at our terrible circumstances. You would look at what's going on in our life. And you would get us out of this. And you would deliver us. And the Lord says to him, Go in this mind of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? It's as if the Lord is returning and saying to Gideon, Listen, Gideon, if you think that the Midianites are the most pressing thing in your life right now, and that my presence has come first and foremost to deal with that, you're greatly mistaken. See, what I'm most concerned with is dealing not just with those things out there, but you right here. Have I come to save you? Absolutely. But the way I've come to save you may not be what you wanted salvation from. It's like this. You know, sometimes uh, things in our life are, are not going well. And uh, we turn and we beg for God's help. We beg for uh, relief. We, re we beg for uh, an exit from these circumstances for him to come and intervene and almost give us a 90 degree angle uh, change in life. And uh, sometimes he does. Sometimes he does show up. And sometimes the circumstances are changed. But in scripture, what is always true is that Sometimes God does come and change circumstances for people, but what he always does is come first and foremost to change the person in the circumstances. John Ortberg, a pastor in Northern California, he said it this way, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me that he wants. And some of us find that so uh, hurtful or frustrating at least, because we think, God, if you really were loving, if you really were with me, if you really were caring, how can you not look out into my life, into the very thing that's been bothering me uh, all week long, all month long, all fall long, and not want to heal that, and not want to change that, and not want to get me out of that? Uh, how can you not care for that? Because this is that's what Gideon is saying, is if you really cared 
you would get us out of this. And God is looking at him and saying, look, I'm not that cruel. We say, what? Uh, did you see um, last summer uh, Toy Story 4? Uh, if you didn't, you should see it. It's a great Pixar movie. But there's an uh, amazing character in the movie. Um, Gabby Gabby. Uh, she was like sort of the villain in the movie to uh, uh, Tom Hanks' character Woody and uh, Tim Allen's character Buzz. And her story is that she's stuck in an antique store as this uh, old antique doll. And nobody wants her because her voice box doesn't work. And so she lives this lonely, uh, painful life and wishing somebody would pick her up and love her. And thinking if she could just get taken, if somebody just would, would want her, then everything would be okay. And she'd just be uh, so joyful, her life would be complete. So she thinks, well, in order for that to happen, the one thing I need is a working music box. So she meets uh, Tom, ha Tom Hanks, Woody's character, who's got a working one. And she does everything she can to steal his, um, his music box so she can get it in her. And then she'll get her greatest dream. So she steals it. And it builds to this scene where she's all fixed now. And she thinks, now my greatest dreams are going to come true. So she's sitting in the middle of the antique store with her box fixed. And she pulls her own string because, you know, they're actually not toys. They're like living things. Who we don't know that. And um, so she pulls the string. And uh, it makes the little doll noise. And a little girl walks over. And then all the other characters come around because they think she's about to get her, her biggest dream. Her deepest, darkest wish is about to come true. And a girl picks her up and pulls the string. The voice says, hi, I'm Gabby Gabby. Do you want to be my friend? And the girl holding her just goes, eh. <laughs> and throws her down. And you see that the little doll is more haunted, more lonely, more burdened, and more miserable than she was even before. Because what she thought was, if I just get these circumstances, everything's going to be okay. And then when she got them, and it never lived up to what she thought, it was more hellacious than it was before. You know what God is saying to Gideon right now? In this text, he's saying, Gideon, I'm not going to set you up for something like that. Where you just think the, the Midianites going away is going to heal you and make all this better. And, and that that's going to be the freedom that you long for. And what Gideon is learning is that he's got two pressing things in his life. He's got the Midianites out there and he's got the idols in his dad's front yard. And he is so sure that the thing enslaving and ruining of his life are the Midianites out here. And God is saying, listen, if you just go after that it's going to subject you to a more painful burden than you've ever even imagined. And what is most urgent and what is most pressing right now in your life and what I've come to do with my presence is to take down those idols in your dad's front yard. So what he says is before we even begin to think about the Midianites, what we've got to do is go to your dad's front yard and we've got to chop those things down. And you know what happens we, didn't, we just didn't have time to read the whole story. But it says Gideon is so afraid to deal with these things that he's building his life on. Because how the Israelites would do is it wasn't, um, it wasn't like the Israelites would come in these foreign lands 
and go, oh, this God is a better God. See you, God of Israel. Uh, and we're just going to worship these foreign things. What they would do is they would come in these foreign lands and they would want to be faithful. They would want to be faithful to the God who brought them there. But they would look out into the culture and they would see things like, oh, uh, those people are doing very well agriculturally. Uh, those people have really bigger, healthier families than we do. Uh, and there's gods that give them those things. Maybe we can both love them and love God of Israel. And God comes and says, listen, those have got to come down. And Gideon, you've got to take that away. And he's terrified to do it. Because he knows this is going to affect his life and the people's life around him. So he says, we've got to do this at night. And the next day, everybody wakes up and goes, who tore down those idols? And they figure out it's Gideon. And they say, he's got to go. And you, you, you learn this. When God wants to come into your life and his presence wants to come and deal with actually the most urgent thing that's pressing in your life, it never feels like salvation. It's going to feel like an attack. See, God is, Gideon is saying to God, save me. And God is saying, I am. And I know it doesn't feel like that. One of the most um, profound places this is taught to us is in um, Luke 21. Jesus is sort of teaching about the end times. And he says to his disciples, listen to this. This is, um, you know, almost a paradox. You'll be delivered up even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you, they will put to death. It's not like your happy morning devotion. You'll be hated by all, by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. What in the world? You will uh, be killed, but nothing will happen to you. You'll be hated, but you'll be loved. He means this. In life, look, there is you, and then there's a real you. There's a you that you have convinced everybody else of that is uh, doing life a particular way, and it's built on certain things, and it's you're making it work. But then there's a you that's inside that you that's only known to you and maybe, maybe to one other person in this world. And that you is built off something in this world. And what the problem with that is, is when you build your life on something in this world, every day is a threat. See, if you build your life on your career, if you build your life on your marriage, if you build your life on your children, if you build your life on your finances, every day is a threat. And the hairs on your head can be ripped off and you can be hated and you can be destroyed. But Jesus is saying in this text, listen, there's a real you. And if you give me that, if you give me the real you, nothing can ever happen to you. Nothing can ever hurt you because things in this world, they can come at things in your life. They can't ever take your life because your life is in my hands and it can never, ever, ever, ever be touched. And so when things, when, when things in this world try to kill you and attack you, all it will do is throw you into the joyful laughter of my presence. That will clothe you. I'll tell you about somebody who did this and understood this. Her name was Helen Rosevere. Helen was a missionary um, in the Belgian Congo. 
in the 60s, and what happened to her is uh, when she was a teenager, she'd become a Christian at uh, an Urbana conference where, like, John Stott and um, Martin Lloyd-Jones were speaking and, and J.I. Packer, and they challenged all these young people to go give their life to foreign missions. Uh, so she did, and she went to the Belgian Congo, and she built uh, elementary schools. She helped build a hospital. Uh, she helped start a church, and she had this incredible ministry to... Um, uh, mostly uh, blind children who had leprosy as well. And she did this for several years, uh, keeping a journal until 1964 in the uprising of the Belgian Congo when uh, there began to be uh, riots all the way around and her town was ransacked. And they burnt down the hospital that she'd helped build. She, they destroyed the school that she'd helped start. And they burnt down the church that she'd helped begin. And they took even her out into the middle of the town burned her journal for 11 years of everything she'd ever done and actually even began to assault her. And she said many years later when she was speaking in that moment when that was happening it was like the heavens opened up and the penny dropped and she realized I have been doing all of this for me. She said I realized in that moment what I'd done is I had gone out and tried to build a life that was so admirable. And it was. I'd done this school. I'd done this church. I'd done this hospital. So that people would write about me. Now she said I realized in this moment. God did not take me out here. And let this happen. To save these people around me. He did it. Because this was the only way to save me. And that's a woman who understands the presence of God. That the most urgent, pressing thing in your life is that God save you from you giving yourself to anything else in this world that can be more central and more precious and more foundational than the living presence of God through the gospel itself. That's why he will come, but that's what he will do. But thirdly and lastly, if you want to taste that, you've got to meet him in a very particular way. And it's sort of throughout the whole text. And here's where we really get into chapter 7. But uh, Gideon uh, meets God, and here's a couple things. In, in chapter 6, uh, verse 15, he says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. Like, Lord, we're an outcast family, and I'm the runt of my family. But then you get into chapter 7, and God convinces Gideon that they're going to go uh, build an army. And so the first thing that Gideon does is he uh, is strange and much of an outcast as he is and much to his surprise. He's able to get a huge army of 32,000 people to go fight the uh, Midianites. And, uh, and so God says, Gideon, this is way too many people. Which I always want to know what Gideon's reaction was to that. Like, who's ever said that before? So he says, uh, go ask them who's afraid. And so Gideon says, hey, how many of you are afraid and don't want to do this? And 22,000 of them go, me. And so they all leave. So he's down to 10,000, and God says, this is still too many. So take them to the creek and have them drink water. And I don't think that there's, yeah, I think most commentators would agree with this. I don't think there's a lot of theological, like, metaphors going on here um, about, you know, drinking water a particular way, and it was more prepared for battle or the presence of God. I think, honestly, what happened was God says, go take them down to the water and have them drink and come back and tell me what happens. And uh, Gideon says, you know what? Uh, 
9,700 of them got down and drank like a dog. And God says, yeah, tell them I'll leave. Because I want a laughable, insane number to go into this battle. And then it gets even crazier when we're told uh, in verses 16 and 17, the battle plan uh, to go take on this whole army is to take a, a jar, a torch, and a trumpet. And all these circumstances sort of tell us the same thing. That for Gideon to, to taste and experience and thrive in God's presence, and if you're going to taste God's presence, it requires one thing, and that's our weakness. That the only way God is going to work and meet Gideon in this is that it's got to come in the manifestation of his weakness. And really, this is a, a clue for us right now why we're so spiritually stale. If you're if you are spiritually bored or stale, follow me on this one. Here's why you are, and here's why I struggle with this, because our human heart is prone to do this: to figure out what will give me the most credit in life, to to look for strengths, uh, to develop them, to build them, to market it, and to make my life built on that. And living in life in light of our strengths is how we go about life. And really, you know what? We can do this in one of two ways. You can do this by either going out into the culture and finding what will really help you climb the social financial ladder and uh, doing that as best as you can. Or you can come into something like this, the church, and figuring out what will make you the most admirable, likable, uh, to the top Christian you know. And you hide all your sin. You hide all your struggles and you hide all your problems and people start to think that you're the most godly, admirable person that we could find in the church. And you climb your way to the top and you live into your strengths that way. And there's an unbelievable danger and irony in this. I mean, the danger is if you lean into your strengths that you can mistake the presence of God through the manifestation of your, your gifts. See, there are people in the church who actually will do unbelievable things for God without ever having his presence. Because this is a testimony throughout the whole New Testament that says there will be people one day who said, God, those amazing things that we did, those sermons we preached, those songs we wrote, those miracles that we did, didn't you love that? And he'll say, I never knew you. But there's also an amazing irony in this. That if you're leaning into your strength this morning, do you know that's the greatest weakness in your life right now? Because what it's doing is it's keeping you. It's keeping you from the joy and laughter of the gracious presence of God that's only given to you. It's only given to us in our weaknesses. J.K. Rowling um, was speaking about a dozen years ago at Harvard University um, commencement. And the title of her lecture was called The Benefits of Failure. She said to students, she said, I was sitting right where you were at Exeter University several, just several years ago. And not long after that, uh, I had a massive fail in marriage. I quickly got divorced, lost everything, was a single parent living in London, uh, as poor as one could be without being homeless. She said that I had nothing but in that moment, for her, life became the most clear and beautiful. And this is where 
many people think she became, she became a Christian. She said, I call benefit a failure. Why? Because benefit, failure, what it did, is it stripped away all the inessentials of life. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive. I still had a daughter who I adored. I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my whole life. What a, what a Christian is and how the presence of God begins to be not just something we sing about this morning, but that as Sproul said, is just the presence where we walk every step of our life. You begin to taste and experience that when you, as she said, at rock bottom. And so let me ask you this morning, where, where are you resisting rock bottom? Let's apply this for a second before we leave. Because I think we can apply this in, in the, the circumstances of the war and the, um, um, the army itself. The weapons for this battle are comical. And how we go into relationships are, are, are often the weapons of culture. In our marriages, in our work relationships, in our friendships, in our parenting, uh, we, all, we often go in with the sword of manipulation, uh, with the shield of guilt, um, you know, with the breastplate of shame. And we use those things to make sure that we are always on top and we are winning every relationship and we never have to be weak in any of it. But all it does is it keeps us out of the presence of God and it keeps us out of the presence of other people. Look, the weapons of the gospel um, are not weapons that are going to win you any kind of battle in culture. But they will win the real battles of this world for the kingdom of God, like forgiveness, like humility, like counter-conditional love. Like laying your life down for somebody who does nothing for you. You know what? Paul calls those weapons in Ephesians 6. There's this foolishness to this world. But it is salvation for the war of all wars. And, and, and the, the army here, let's apply it this way. Some of you, I, I don't know where you are with the faith and what you know about the faith, but you often think... Um, uh, you could never be a leader in this church. Or you could never do anything for God in Bakersfield. You could never uh, bring anybody into this church. You could never win anybody to the Lord. Because you don't know enough. Or you're not skilled enough. Or you're not gifted in here. Look, that is the exact opposite thinking of this text. Because what this text says is the most laughable army. Is the ones who win the war. Look, if you think you have no gifts, that means you're gifted for the kingdom. If you think you have nothing to offer, that's when you have something to offer. Because what you're doing when you think you have nothing to offer is you're leaning into your strengths and not the presence of God. But what the presence of God wants to do is use the weakest, most outside, rejected, social kind of person in this culture to reach this world. And if you ever feel like that, you need to lean into that and believe that the presence of God will be with you to go work. And that's kind of scary to us. So we need to close with a resource that they didn't have, but you do. See, there's a better, a better Gideon in Jesus.
that when Gideon came on the scene, he said, Lord, why would anybody ever listen to me? I'm this stranger, you know, uh, I'm from nowhere. When Jesus came on the scene, I mean, Nathaniel goes, he's from where? From who? From Nazareth? Can anything good come out of that? And then Gideon goes into battle, and he goes in uh, with 300 people. Uh, it's not many. It seems laughable. But when Jesus is about to go into battle of all battles in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, every, even his disciples left him. He went in utterly alone. And all of his friends, even his family, they wanted nothing. They denied him to the weakest of all people in society. But then Gideon, he goes into the battle of all battles of Midian with these weapons that just made no sense. They seem like foolishness. But he went in with the presence of God. Jesus, he goes into the battle of all battles with sin and death for you on, a, on something that just was utter foolishness, the cross. But you know, unlike Gideon, he went in without the presence of God because on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which guarantees you this if you're in Christ, that you lean into your weaknesses every time and you will never, ever, ever Lose the presence of God because on the cross Jesus did for you. So that in the gospel you're fully equipped to go out and live the Christian life the way Paul talked about it. That you take the weakest part of your life, you take the foolishness of your life, and you walk around like that is a jar of clay. And people will begin to look at that and see that's power. And then they'll realize that's not from you, that's from God. Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on this text, he said this, and I'll say this to you. God does not need your strength. He has more than enough power of his own. He asks for your weakness, for he has none of that himself, and he is longing, therefore, to take your weakness and use it as an instrument in his own mighty hand. Will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? Won't you do that now? Let me pray. Jesus... Uh, there's just no one like you. Even the stories we have in Scripture, Lord, of, of ways that your Father worked and His presence was there where uh, they went in, Lord, in fearful moments, but we see your presence was with them. To see the foolishness of the kingdom triumph and then you went in, Lord, in the battle of all battles, just re rejected it alone so that we can know your Father is with us at all times. Uh, let that comfort us, whether we are spiritually dark and dead or we have been thriving, Lord. Lord, I pray that for these people that they would go out with the power of your presence and do incredible things for this town. Um, and you would work through all of their weakness and fallacies. In Jesus' name, amen.